Hey, it's David, and you're listening to the Toby's Classical Guitar Podcast. We've got Laura Snowden on the show today. Wonderful tone bass artist has a great feature with Steve Goss on a lesson on Benjamin Britten's Nocturnal. If you're still not a member of Tone Bass, head on over to ToneBase.co and use the promo code PODCAST-3, all uppercase and one word, for $15 off of a subscription. Had a great conversation with Laura the other day talking about her work uh, as a Julian Bream scholar, working with the legend himself to put on uh, several different commissions at the Wigmore Hall in London. And we also talked about some of her past and upcoming composition projects, along with talking about her different compositional techniques. Let's go ahead and listen uh, to a recording sample of one of her compositions. This is Laura's piece, Light Perpetuum, performed by the Vita Guitar Quartet with Amy Green on the saxophone. Thank you. 
here with Laura Snowden and uh, many of our members on Tobase are quite familiar with her playing. You did a wonderful performance of the Britain Nocturnal, of course, one of the uh, pivotal works in the Julia Bream uh, commissioned repertoire. And over the past couple years at Wigmore Hall, you've uh, given world premieres that Julia Bream himself commissioned. What were those experiences like? Yeah, that was really cool. Um, it was two different pieces because so, I did two um, separate performances at Wigmore Hall, one in 2015, one in 2017. So the first was a premiere by um, a British composer called Julian Anderson. And the second one was um, by a Finnish composer, Oli Mustanen. And the whole program around it was devised by Julian. So I worked with him for about four years on those programs and preparing for the concerts. Wow, that, that must have been amazing with someone like him. What else were on these programs then? Was it kind of a substantial part of the quote-unquote Bream repertoire? Um, it was a mixture. Um, for example, in the second concert, I played a couple of Barrios waltzes, which I wouldn't have had down as specific pieces that were associated with Bream. Um, I played Apostle Sex Music, which is this really intense 12-tone piece that lasts about 20 minutes, um, various music by Rodrigo, um, Julian's arrangement of the Bach third cello suite, Barclay Sonatina, Britain Nocturnal, um, Frank Martin. It was a real range of things, but it was just amazing to have these really long lessons with him on all the pieces, the sessions that would last for often several hours. Wow, what an experience that must have been. And with the commissions themselves, was Bream... Um working with the composers or would he send you to work with the composers? How did this uh, pan out? So the first commission, the Julian Anderson piece, um, I worked a lot with Julian Anderson, but that's partly because of the way that he likes to work because he likes to listen to the exact color and um, exact sonority created by whatever he's writing. Um, okay. And he wants to really be there and hear it. So in the beginning, he would sometimes just give me a series of, say, four or five notes, maybe with a couple of harmonics thrown in, and I had to kind of improvise around them or play them uh, so that he could just tune into the resonance and get the sense of what that was going to sound like. Um, that's kind of his compositional process. Mm. So that he then writes it down super concrete and very exact, but he has that uh, process, I think, with everything he writes. Whereas the second piece by Oli Mustanen, that was just, it was finished and I received it. And I worked on it with him once and that was all. Okay. And the composers, I, I'm assuming they were in attendance at Wigmore Hall? Oli Mustanen was not because, uh, well, he lives in Finland. I think he he's also a really busy performer, so I think he just Absolutely, couldn't come. Yeah. Um, but yes, Julian Anderson was there. In fact, he was there at both concerts. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and I mean, Wigmore Hall is the acoustics are just amazing for the guitar. To to my very biased self, it almost seems like it was designed with the guitar in mind. I love it there. Yeah, totally. It's really beautiful. And along with, with playing all these contemporary works, you're a composer yourself. And I was just listening to a couple compositions of yours uh, before we connected today, uh, virtually. And 
I found a really unique how you're uh, sometimes integrating the human voice, whether it was humming or singing, uh, to almost accompany the guitar, in a sense. Uh, do you uh, utilize this technique in a lot of your compositions? More and more, yeah. I've got um, another one where I... Uh, this is getting a bit nerdy, but I play a, a G-sharp harmonic with a G at the same time, and I kind of bend um, the pitch in between the two, so you have the illusion that the harmonic is bending, but it's actually the voice. And um, I just really like using my voice in music in general. Um, when I was in my band with my folk group, I would write a lot of songs and we had a singer who kind of sang most of it, but I used to sing backing vocals or I would occasionally sing a song myself. Um, and that's something that I'm gradually trying to incorporate more into my playing. In fact, just before um, lockdown began and I was in Arizona, I sang one of my songs within my normal concert. And I also did like a little folk set where I sang a folk song and had a couple of folk tunes on either side. So I'm kind of interested in using the voice in all sorts of different ways. Also even talking, I'm writing one piece where I'm um, kind of speaking and saying things at the same time as playing, and then it gradually becomes singing, things like that. Huh. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And when you're talking about speaking and playing together, is this um, using poetry or uh, what, what type of uh, dialogue is it incorporating? Um, my own words so far. Uh, that's what I've been playing with anyway. I mean, I haven't performed these ones. Um, so I suppose the closest thing would be, yeah, poetry or song lyrics. There is a really unique aspect when you're, when you're adding lyrical text into into the classical guitar and it's something we don't explore all that much i mean of course we have arrangements of let's say dallin songs or the britain cycle and all those uh but it, it doesn't happen too much as a solo performer so it's it's really great to hear about you exploring this and the piece i was listening to uh it it, it had that G sharp to the G with the bending with the voice, but giving a really unique illusion. That was definitely more, I guess, maybe atmospheric with the use of the voice. But now mm. you're starting to move towards a bit more of an upfront. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the right word, but you're bringing the, the voice a bit more to the center of the stage for some of your compositions now. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens because this is all... Uh, fairly theoretical but songs I have been doing more of now in public um, so I'm kind of hoping to do the whole um, you know progression from just very slightly incorporating the voice so you don't even know it's there to full-on singing and speaking because I just yeah. find that all really interesting um, maybe it's also um, partly because of the stuff with a folk band and that that was a lot about song and songwriting and um, I just like the idea of trying to incorporate the different aspects of myself into one thing rather than always feeling that it's your kind of fragmented. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, how long have you been playing with the folk band then? So we started, I think, um, probably 10 years ago. It was probably going for about six or seven years and it was really very, very enjoyable and really fun and just probably one of the best experiences I've ever had, really, being part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And what style of folk music? 
So uh, it was, well, in the beginning, because um, I, I became part of it through responding to a um, ad that came around the college bulletin, because as cheesy as it sounds, I was having this say yes to everything week. Uh-huh. And um, I did that. Um, and because I grew up with Celtic folk music, my dad, um, well, he doesn't play this anymore. He's more into other stuff now, but he played the Irish tenor banjo and he used to play Irish folk music. So this mail out was from this Irish guy called Rory Glasheen and he wanted people to play Irish folk music with essentially. So it sort of started out as that, but then it went more, you know, just general Celtic music, Scottish. Um, I'm half Breton, so some Breton music and um, English tunes. And then we got gradually more into the songwriting as well. You were a student at the time when you started playing with this band? Yeah, it was actually in our first year at music college. Okay. So mm. it, it must have been quite a contrast from what I'd imagine maybe a bit more kind of classical direction in your studies and then to have almost a, an, I don't want to say release or escape from classical music because obviously you're very passionate about this music, but just something completely different. Yeah, and I think just putting music in a slightly different context and seeing it in different situations because a lot of the gigs were a lot more informal, kind of um, more club-type atmospheres, Yeah, um, which was also really fun because it just felt very liberating. And we, w- we were having l- a lot of banter on stage. There was a lot of... We were... Uh, I mean, especially between Rory and Pip, the lead singer, there was a huge amount of banter and we also um told stories about the pieces told stories what we've been doing today and for some reason I'd always had this impression that I don't even know where I got this from that in a classical concert you're sort of it's too personal to say anything too personal basically because I had this feeling it's not about you it's about the music so you know you're not allowed to say some weird story about what happened to you on the way to the concert or um, just some weird story about how you started learning the piece or anything. And then I saw Pavel Steidel play in The Globe. And aside from it being one of the most mind-blowing performances I ever saw, he also spoke so beautifully and so wholesomely and in a way that was so... um, true I just found it so honest yeah and I was like oh you can do that and it was just little personal things that he because the concert was organized by John Williams and he talked about how he'd met John Williams and his wife Kathy in a lift and I was like oh my god he's telling a personal story what's happening (laughs) (laughs) and then I saw this so ever since then I know it sounds a little superficial to be worried about how you present and what you say but really that plus combined with the experiences with the folk group really made me think that I could just I I made me very obsessed with trying to be kind of my truest self on stage and trying to be very very honest and genuine with not just how I play but how I present and everything that I say absolutely it and it's too bad on classical stages not all but quite a few there is this kind of stigma of oh it's you've got to say maybe at most just a couple sentences about the history behind a composition. You play the piece and you give a bow and then you leave. And a lot of times there is a bit of uh, 
of a lost connection between the performer and the audience member. Uh, and giving personal experiences, I, I mean, I can only imagine what a, that Pavel Steidel concert would be like, and then to hear such a funny little story like that, but such a meaningful story like that, it probably mm-hmm. adds so much as an audience member. Mm-hmm. It, it's really too bad that sometimes people, for lack of a better term, just get a little too, uh, too up. I, I don't want to say the phrase uptight, you know, it's not that they aren't friendly people, but sometimes a little too formal depending on certain situations yeah i mean i don't even know where i got that from really because i don't remember anyone telling me to do that it was some sort of impression that i'd received but actually when you really think about it plenty of performers don't do that at all they're very personal so i just um finished a solo commission or on the way to finishing it um and then i've also been working on a big ensemble piece, which is for a festival in Canada, um, which was due pretty much now, but actually they've now postponed the festival to next year. So, um, but I'm still kind of aiming to finish it this year and fairly soon, just because it motivates me to keep going. Um, So that's for string quartet, um, percussion, flute, two guitars, choir, and mezzo-soprano soloist. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite an instrumentation. Was that the specific instrumentation they commissioned? or Yeah, they a... commissioned that because that's the performers who take part in the festival, basically, like um, the teachers and the performers who'll give the concerts, um, because I think it's an all-instrument festival. Yeah. And those instruments happen to be what everybody plays. Obviously, quite an interesting instrumentation. What is there a way you could describe the style? of this composition and maybe some of the ways the guitar was integrated in a chamber setting? I think I've tried to, I mean, I've changed my mind so many times actually about what I was writing about because before the lockdown started, I wanted to write it about the church and the church, because it's going to be performed in this really beautiful big church. And um, that church had had this history of it had been burnt down maybe a hundred years ago. And then it, um, that you know, they had to gradually rebuild it, and I was going to write a piece about that process. But then, mm. when lockdown started, I thought I just because the piece was going to start in a really aggressive, traumatic way when it was describing the fire, and I thought I don't know if I want to be writing about trauma and horrible things now. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, but I was confused. What do I want to write about? Because I think. During this time, it, it, because it's so confusing, it's hard to kind of connect with, I don't know, just what you think and make sense of things. And I was like, oh, I should write something positive because that will make people feel happy. But then when I try to write positive stuff, weird, unsettling stuff keeps coming out. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of settled on it's going to be about dreams, probably. I mean... It's still, I've written a lot of it, but I'm still kind of like, what is this about? Because I often feel if you just keep writing, everything will make sense anyway, because it's coming from you. So there will be some kind of logic to it, but it can take a while to work out what that logic is and what's the thing that unifies everything. Yeah. Um, So I've heard comedians talking about that sometimes when they're planning a show and they're writing loads of jokes and they don't really know but what's the show title? Like what's bringing this all together? And then sort of at some point they suddenly go like, oh, 
oh, this is about loss or like, oh, this is about jealousy or something. <laughs> and there's like that undertone to everything, you know. But yeah. I'm, I'm, so I don't really know what the general story of my piece is. I like to have stories in my mind when I'm writing and when I'm um, putting something together. But anyway, sorry, there's a lot of rambling, but I've written no, not at all. one choir movement where I'm using the, um, I'm blending, I'm doing the pitch bends like I do in my composition, but voice like when I do but then I'm combining that with um guitar slide using a glass slide also pitch bending slightly okay so the whole that it blends together and then you've got the choir humming gently in the background and so it just you kind of sounds like a nice choir piece but gone a little bit weird with yeah uh, these bends and then the other movements, um, I've got one with vibraphone and two guitars. It's just very sweet and that's kind of childlike. And then one that's sort of maybe more folky. Um, it's very repetitive and kind of hypnotic and and fast. So I really like very hypnotic and sort of absurdly repetitive music. Well, not absurdly, um, just slightly repetitive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like it would be quite a composition altogether. And I, I, I'm trying to think there's not too many classical guitar pieces that, that utilize the, the guitar slide or bottleneck slide. So <laughs> that'll be a fun <laughs> challenge for the performer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I put it into another piece recently. It was commissioned from, uh, for the London International Guitar Competition for their set piece uh, oh, last okay. year. And it's called Strange World of Spiders. And I have the capo on the ninth fret. Um, and then you play with the glass slide on the wrong side of the capo and all sorts of other strange things. And it's meant to sound like spiders. Oh, oh, that's got to, <laughs> can't play that to the wrong person, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Ron Weasley wouldn't be a fan yes, of that. Yes, I know, but... <laughs> Ron Weasley would not. Speaking of which, I've been rereading Harry Potter. I went to bed far too late yesterday because I was so involved in uh the half-blood prince ah are you going through the entire series then right now <laughs> no because regrettably i only have um book three and book six at home so i just reread those all the time <laughs> <laughs> just go back well i mean the i i only read it up to the fourth one but the third one was my favorite by yeah, far yeah that so, is my so. favorite too so if you're gonna reread one you should probably go for that yeah i i've got to ask you're, you're talking about how you like to at least have a bit of a story in your mind when you're composing a piece. Was there a specific story behind this spider composition or did you just want to make a composition to scare some people? <laughs> no, no, I didn't because I don't like scaring people and also I find spiders scary. But basically um, our window, um, one of the windows doesn't open uh -huh. and we realized that all these spiders were congregating outside and there was a collection of a dozen spiders Ooh. and we couldn't do anything about them because we can't open the window. Wow. Um, so <laughs> I was just composing and I was, I thought I was writing a piece about aliens and it was going to be about alien landing. And it was like, <laughs> you know, and the aliens are coming. Ah. But then um, when I was looking out, all I could see was the spiders. And then it just <laughs> gradually came. Hmm, I don't know. Am I writing about aliens or spiders? And I was texting my friend, like, I don't, I'm confused about whether my piece is about aliens or spiders. And she she liked the idea of a piece about spiders. So I went with that. Get a find inspiration for whatever your surroundings are. For our listeners who've been tuning in throughout the seasons, we had Mark Eden uh, 
back in season three from the Vita Guitar Quartet. And you spoke about a composition uh, that you wrote for the ensemble along with soprano saxophone. What was this composition like for you? It was pretty awesome because Vida Quartet are some heroes of mine in the UK. Yeah. Because I've really grown up looking up to them and, and to the Eden Stell duo. Um, and Chris Stell was my, one of my teachers at college. So oh, okay, great. It, it was kind of cool, like... <gasps> my teacher's asking me to write a piece. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that, well, that was actually a long time ago. That was a duo piece that Eden Stell asked me to write a piece for them when I was um, still at college. So that was why that was exciting. But then yeah. a while later, when I was no longer a student, um, they asked me to write a piece for four guitars and saxophone, which is a pretty funky combo um, yeah. and slightly worrying because I was aware that the saxophone will just obliterate the four guitars so I had to really write that super carefully because actually I, I made some bits that was really really quiet um with harmonics and tremolo but then the uh saxophone was playing in this I can't remember what it's called like half tone sound or something um and playing as quietly as possible but when she was playing loudly I basically had to have them all just playing full-on big chords strumming and stuff because yeah, otherwise yeah. it's just simply the resonance it will just kill everything and especially in the register that the soprano saxophone mm, yeah. is in yeah with the guitar and what's the name of this composition uh light perpetuum is there a story behind i, I keep asking stories <laughs> <laughs> but is there a is there a story behind this one as well um it's a little bit more vague but i was just thinking about different types of light so in the twinkly magic section in the middle, I was imagining like, you know, when light sort of goes through the glass and I, sorry, I'm, t I'm so bad at science. It's one of my big um, problems. I say things like, uh, I, I don't know if you can get electrocuted from a candle. That's like the level that I'm on. Um, but <laughs> hey, but like what, what you do on the guitar, no scientists could ever do. Everyone, everyone's good at something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just have to think about that. But um, so when light goes like a little rainbow through stuff, uh -huh. that thing. Yeah. <laughs> through glass. Um, so that was the middle section. And then the beginning was meant to be bright lights in a city. Let's okay. say in New York or London. And there's that yeah. city feeling. Um, so I was, then I, because it was meant to have a feeling of constant motion because it was inspired by Bach's, um, the presto from his G minor violin sonata, which okay. again was, that was part of the requirement of the composition because it was for a CD about music inspired by Bach. That's why it had this sense of constant motion and kind of drive and excitement. And, and I quoted a little bit of the sonata in it. So that's where the perpetuum bit came from oh, with the light. Very nice. Yeah. One of the questions I'd like to ask uh, the composers who I've had on the show is, do you compose with the guitar or do you tend to compose away from the guitar then check back with the guitar to make sure it fits on the instrument? If I'm writing for guitar, I mostly use the guitar. Uh, when I was writing the piece for Vida Quartet, because then, then you've got four guitars, um, I wrote another piece for Mela Guitar Quartet later, which was written using a slightly different system, which I'll talk about in a sec. But um, the Vida piece, I was writing a lot on the keyboard because I was trying to work out these harmonies. Um, and then I was uh, sort of working out how to distribute the notes evenly on the guitar. 
but I'm really, really into just color and the colors of the guitar and the specific resonance and yeah. uh, especially with harmonics. And I love it so, so, so much. So I really like trying to create very specific and kind of weird sounds and like stories that are in my head and I want to make them sound like that on guitar. So I do find it really helpful to mostly use the instrument and what I did a lot for the piece that I wrote for the Mella Quartet was that I um, recorded, I was doing it on a garage band or something, but <laughs> I was recording one part and then adding another and another and layering it up because that way I could hear how those resonances were going to work together a bit more because I, I just think resonance is so important um, and it's easy to lose that if I don't work with the guitar. Thank you, Laura, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with another great guitarist. Going to leave us with something a little different, uh, which I absolutely love. This is one of Laura's tunes that she wrote with her folk ensemble, Tierra Olas. The name of the song is Aida. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.
seasons, seas of calm.